chapter. And uh, again, we uh, are having uh, internet computer problems, so uh, not sure, but uh, the IT department's on it, and uh, we'll figure it out. And if it is, it is, and if it isn't, it isn't. And uh, I'm for uh, chucking it all and just being here. And uh, we'll uh, enjoy it anyway. All right, Romans chapter 11. Uh, we start a new chapter here this, uh, in this uh, chapter number three, in section number three here of the book of Romans. As uh, we were moving across here, uh, this Romans chapter number 9, 10, and 11, this third section here, and uh, we're, uh, uh, again, dealing with the dispensational setting of the nation of Israel and the status of Israel. Chapter 9, Paul went in and talked about Israel's past and why they stumbled and why they fell. And again, the issue there with them is unbelief. And now in chapter 10, what's their present situation? What's their present condition? They're still stumbling and they're still falling and they're still in unbelief. Now in chapter 11, he's going to provide the details now, not only of Israel's present status, but also about their future hope. And what is happening with Israel, even though if you look there at verse 1, I say then hath God cast away his people, God forbid, even though dispensationally God is doing something different and new, doesn't mean that Israel's program is going to come to a halt. It's going to stop. It's, it's a temporary thing here. And this gets important as we go because of what gets said out there in mainline Christianity. So when, you, when we come to this chapter, we're coming to a chapter of, of really great importance and great detail. Uh, verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he make, maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. By the way, this First Kings 19, that's where we're at, okay? But what saith the answer of God unto him? Now, Elijah is prophesying against Israel, all right? God answers him and says, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. And there's a condition there. We're going to get through all of those verses. But when you come here, there's so much information in this chapter that gets abused, that gets misunderstood, that gets misused. And I'm not going to go run through it, so we're only going to get one verse today, okay? And then next week we'll get another verse. And, and the reason is, is because of, of what, how this chapter gets used. And when you really just sit and read it, 
I need my fly swatter now. We're going to get, and that might be a sister or an aunt or something. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, were t- we were talking about reincarnation yesterday a little bit. So anyway, the outline of the chapter here. Uh, the first 25 verses, it, it really kind of outlines itself really in three, three components. The first 25 verses, here's Israel's present fall, their blindness, but it's not a permanent situation. It's a temporary situation. If you look down at verse 25, he says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness, notice, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. As long as the church, the body of Christ, is on board, is on the scene, Israel's condition is one of blindness temporarily. Then in verse 26 to 29, well, what does he say in verse 26? And so all Israel shall be saved. There's her future hope. Even though there's a temporary condition, her hope, her fullness, her future is still on the table. I'm going to end up whacking myself in the head. (laughs) Okay? Whack. All right? And then from verse 30 to the end of the chapter, you see God's present purpose and what he's doing in in the church and so forth, setting up for chapter number 12. So verse 1 is a critical verse, and the way it starts. Now, again, verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. The question, the way, and and again, you have to remember, Paul is writing chapters 9, 10, and 11 in light of his Acts ministry. He's dealing with, so as he does that ministry, he deals with very real challenges. This question is a logical question. It's not unlogical. Now, it's a question of unbelief. We'll see that here in just a minute. But it's a question that comes from, based on Paul, based on what you've been talking about to us, then the conclusion is, well, then has he just thrown his people away? Has he stopped? And that's a, it's an honest question, it's a logical question, but again, when you're in chapters 9, 10, and 11, you have to remember that you, to understand those chapters in light of what Paul is doing during his Acts ministry. What is Paul's manner? Go to the synagogues, the Jew first, go to them first. One, the why is always a question. Well, well, one is they're familiar with the Word of God. They're familiar with the Old Testament more so than a Gentile would be. But they're also the ones that this is heaven. Could you imagine 1,500 years you've been God's people, and now you've got a guy telling you you're not God's people anymore? That's going to raise some, you know, whoa, wait a minute here. So that's what he does in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's what Paul is doing in the book of Acts here is he's answering these objections. And, and again, chap, chapter 9, Israel says, it isn't our fault, it's whose fault? It's God's fault. Paul says, no, it's not God's fault, it's your unbelief, it's your fault. Chapter 10, we, we didn't know, we didn't have the information. Yes, you did have the information, it's always been there, it's always been given to you. The problem is, is you don't believe it, you didn't study. Now in chapter 11, he's going to deal with this question here of, hey, is, is God just finished with Israel? Did he just throw Israel away? So we have to think, remind ourselves quickly here, 
how did Paul end chapter 10? Look up at verse 18. Chapter 10, verse 18. But I say, have they, and again, that's Israel, not heard. Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Paul, dealing with Israel, God has already predicted Israel's demise. Israel would stumble. So guess what? There's no excuse for them. If they had been studying the Old Testament, the word of God to them, they would not have stumbled. They would not be in unbelief. They would have identified the Messiah when he showed. They would have trusted the Messiah. They would have still done what they did, but they would, it would have been from a place of belief. Now watch verse 19. But I say, did not Israel know? Yes, they know. First Moses. See, Well, Moses is their main guy. They pull Moses up at every argument. They pull Abraham up and Moses. Boom, here. Why? He's the great lawgiver. He's their guy. He's their hero. I will provoke you to jealousy. And again, here he's going to be quoting uh, Deuteronomy 32. I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. They did know. Yet what did they do? They still stumbled. They still are in unbelief. Then verse 20, but Isaiah, so here's Isaiah, Isaiah 65, but Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. Here's the, the little flock. Verse 21, but to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Paul summarizes Israel in verse 21. That's the condition in Israel. That's the Israel's response to what God is doing, whether it's in her program or in the new program under the Apostle Paul. What is their, what is their response? They're disobedient and they're gainsaying. Gainsayers are arguers, always wanting to argue. Got to have an argument, always, instead of studying the Word. I told the guys yesterday, get out of the theology books and read your Bible. Because when you get into the book, you quickly find out the theology books are, are usually wrong because of what the verses say. I always use the great illustration of Noah and the ark. How many animals did Noah put how did how many animals did Noah put on the ark? Noah didn't put the animals on the ark. God did. Verse says God brought the animals. Oh, he did it two by two. Are you sure? Because the verse that says two by two, the verse right before that says that he put seven of the clean animals on. Why? Well, they got to have something to eat. Clean animals got to eat. And then they got to sacrifice when they get on the other side. So you go study that stuff out real quickly. Two by two is not the complete answer. Here, what's going on? They're operating in ignorance. The information is available. They can't say it wasn't. He's given it to them. He gave it to them through the prophets. He gave it to them through Moses. He gave it to them through through the writing prophets, they have it. When the Lord shows up and he says, I'm doing this to fulfill the scriptures, that should have been the light bulbs go off, they don't get that. So if all of that is true, that they're a disobedient and gainsaying people, if everything that Paul's been talking about is true, that Israel's hope and her program has been interrupted, her status has been changed to cast away, accursed, 
And all, all that the prophet said was coming has been interrupted. So then 11.1, the question is a natural question. Hath God cast away his people? That is something that is, that is a natural conclusion you can come to when you hear Paul describing Israel's present condition. That is what? Well, then is God done with them? Is he just finished with them? Is he, is he just throwing them away? Is he replacing them with the church, the body of Christ? And so all of this begins to happen. But really what this question is, is a question of unbelief. Because if you study the Old Testament, you would never ask that question. Because the Old Testament, and we're going to go look here in a, in a few minutes, okay? The Old Testament over and over again says, the children of Israel are going to last how long? Forever. They're my people forever. See? So, the, so if you studied out the Old Testament, you would real quickly see, you would never say that God is just casting away his people. Something else has happened here. So the question is rooted really in unbelief. And it demonstrates how... It demonstrates the level of regard for the Old Testament you really have, if that's your question. Now, I'm going to say you, and I'm not, I don't mean anyone in the room, okay? <laughs> it's just going to be the way it's going to come out, all right? So if you have a very low regard of the Old Testament, what are you going to conclude? After hearing Paul, after hearing chapter 9 and 10, what are you going to say? God's done with Israel. He's finished with them. He's he, he's, he must have transferred everything in Israel's program over to the Gentiles, because that's what he's doing now. So the question here is a question of unbelief. It's a natural question. It's a, it's a question that comes uh, to a natural conclusion. But it's a question really of unbelief. Now, the answer, how do you answer that question tells a lot about your the, the theological system that you're following. How do you answer that question? How did Paul answer it? God forbid. So how's Paul going to approach this question? Dispensationally, rightly dividing the word of truth? How should we approach it? Same way. So if you say, if you answer the question in an, an affirmative of, yes, he has cast away his people, then you are literally calling God a liar. That's what you're doing. Again, I'm not say, I say you, I'm not talking about anybody in the room, okay? Or on the internet, I, you know, until you email me and then we get into that. The thing is, is if you think about who does, who answers a yes to replacement theology, covenant theology, what are they ultimately doing? Saying that the word of God is a lie. Now, again, I know that we're not calling God a liar, but you're saying he's unfaithful, he's untrue, which, by the way, is calling him a liar, <laughs> okay, just to be blunt. If you end up believing or teaching something that isn't true, and you have to teach that God has decided to transfer the entire prophetic program over, to the church, the body of Christ, then you're calling God a liar. So you know what they say? They say, 
Israel got all the curses, and we're getting all the blessings. Don't you know we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places? And then they go quote Ephesians 1. But wait a second. When's the last time your life has been pretty easy as a believer? We still get sick, don't we? We still turn. Yesterday, after the, we were fixed, trying to fix the toilet back there, we'll get a new ring, put it down, tighten it down, then flush it, water comes pouring out of the bottom. I looked at Phil, I said, I'm done. I am not a plumber. Where's Parker and son? And then we're on the way home, and I'm like, you know what? I'll ask Keith. He's got experience with it, and I'll just have Keith give me some advice on what that, because it comes back up. It's clean water. It's not stinking. Who knows? We inspect the toilet. The toilet's not cracked. Everything's working. It's what? It's something. But why is that? Because everything does what eventually? Break. It wears out. So, see, that's a... That's a curse of the creation that you and I groan and travail in, Romans 8. You see, Israel didn't get all the curses and that end the deal. See, that's the point. But that's what they say. That's what the covenant theologists, the reform, the replacement ideas begin to say. And if you say that, then you have to, you have to do a, you have to do a, uh, the word dance. What's it called? Oh, I just had it. Where you the semantics, and you begin to redefine terminology. So what you say then is if God replaced Israel with the church, the body of Christ, then when you read Israel in the Old Testament, that is a code word for church, the body of Christ. It is? When I read Israel, what do I think of? Israel. Do you follow that? They, it's a code word. So, so now I'm coming over and I'm trying to figure out, is that code or is it the literal historical nation of Israel? What is it? And, and what begins to happen is, is they, say, they don't say that God cast Israel away. They say that he replaced Israel with the church, the body of Christ. And in order to get around that, they then say that Israel is a code word for Israel. It's a code word for the church. The body. I'm looking for a verse. I'm sorry. Okay? The, the, it's code. So then you begin to diminish the literal historical identity of the nation of Israel in order to get around some of the problems that creep up. So how should you answer the question? 11.1. How about the way Paul did? God forbid. Understand what's going on here. Understand that if you will answer it from a mid-acts dispensational viewpoint and follow Paul and understand the issues of right division, you're going to save yourself a lot of headache, a lot of heartache. Because if you conclude that God has thrown away his people, the literal historical nation of Israel, and replaced them with the church, the body of Christ, you are functioning in unbelief. That's what you're doing. So what is Paul's answer? He says, God forbid, the divine protest, right? But then he says something else in verse 1. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So now Paul is going to give two more evidences to the answer of God forbid. What's the answer? What's God's answer? God forbid. Then Paul says, 
Here's an evidence. Number one is me. He uses himself when it comes to Israel's current status. She is cast away. She has lost that favored nation dispensationally. And it's not a permanent thing. It's a temporary thing. One day he's going to finish it out. But then he looks and he says, you know how you know it's not permanent? You know how this is? I, notice verse 1, for I also am a what? An Israelite. And Paul takes the question, did God, did God cast away his people? God forbid. But wait a minute, Paul, you just spent two chapters telling me you did. Look at verse 15, 11, 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life? Wait a second. What's verse 15 say? He did cast them away. So now what do we have? Now we have two verses in disagreement. Or do we? Hmm. What's going on here? He's like, "There's, there's things you have to think about here. In 11.1, the first part of the answer is he uses himself, an individual Israelite. Now, what is, think about 11.1. For I also am a what? An Israelite. Verse 2. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. If, just in case verse 1 wasn't clear enough for you. So the first part, the first evidence here is himself, the individual Israelite. God is still dealing with the individual. When Paul goes into the synagogue, who is in the synagogue? Believing Israel or unbelieving Israel? Unbelieving Israel. The believing remnant, they're off doing, they're, they're not in the synagogue. The synagogue are filled with the Jews who are in that vain, apostate, religious system. Paul goes into them. So is God not saying, you, it, it, God isn't saying you Jews can't get saved. He's like, no. So you can't say he cast away his people. Do you, am I stumbling over that enough for you? You can... You can, <laughs> if you come to this dispensationally, rightly dividing, and you understand that God will return, he will restore, he will resume Israel's program, but that individual still has an opportunity to do what? To believe, to respond positively to what's going on, to what God is saying and doing. Now, in verse 2 to 6, the second, just real quick, we'll get into this next time. In 2 to 6, the second evidence is that issue of the remnant idea, the 7,000. He goes in and he uses Elijah there and the 7,000. And then in verse 5, there's a remnant. So the second evidence is the remnant idea. And, and we'll talk about that. We'll develop that next time. So the two evidences here are the answer to the question is god done with israel well 11:1 no 11:2 no but yet in 11:15 what did he do he's done with israel 
wait a minute. Paul is talking about two different things here. 11.1 is the individual, and 11.15 is the nation, the national status. God is not in nation building today. He's in what? Individual building. There seems to, and I'll be honest with you folks, unless you rightly divide the word, you're going to say contradiction, boop, 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 boop. But yet when you get into this, Paul is dealing with two different issues. When it comes to Israel's current status as a nation, dispensationally, she is cast away. But And again, it's not a permanent thing. But when you see him say, I am an Israelite, what is he dealing with now? The individual. So what in Acts, as his manner was, he goes into the synagogue, reasons with them out of the scriptures, showing that Jesus Christ is the very Christ, he is Messiah, and some of the Jews do what? Do you remember? They believed. Well, when they believed, what did, where did they go? They became a part of the church, the body of Christ. But wait a minute, they're Jews. Well, yeah, because a Jew and a Gentile make up the body. You follow that? So Paul in 11.1 isn't dealing with the nation. He's dealing with the individual. God hasn't done away with the individual. Because look at Paul. Paul says, I'm not a castaway. I'm saved. I got saved on the road to Damascus. Do you know another guy? Do you, you remember Apollos? who was eloquent in the scripture. Do you know he was a Jew? He followed up to John the Baptist, and Aquila and Priscilla bring him. Do you know that when, he, when they do that, he becomes a member of the church, the body of Christ? Because he never believed that Jesus was Messiah. He never got that far. He only knew John's baptism and John's doctrine. So when you think about Apollos and him coming in, what's going on? There's a guy, an eloquent man, and what does he do? He hears Aquila and Priscilla, he hears Paul's gospel, and he trusts that, and he becomes a member of the body of Christ. You th- I mean, if you think about these guys and how they do, and what Paul's experience, and it's, it's everywhere. Because what's the requirement to be a part of the church, the body of Christ? Just trusting that Christ died for your sins. That's it. Look, come over, just real quick, look at Galatians uh, Galatians 3. I, I, I just, I don't want to, I, I, we got a lot to cover, and I, I don't want to belabor the point, but you do need to see this, because Paul is going to skillfully answer the question of unbelief that God has cast them away. He's replaced us with the church. He's done away with them completely, and Paul's going to say, no, he hasn't on an individual basis. The individual is Paul's focus in the first part here. And part one of, the, of, the, of his answer, that individual Jew. And again, during Paul's Acts ministry, they, the individuals could respond positively to the message and become a part of the church, the body of Christ. Look at Galatians 3. Look, if you will, at verse 28. Just a, a verse like this. There is neither, what? Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek. That's a nationality distinction. You're either a Jew or you're a Greek, a Gentile. That's what you are. Bond or free, that's an economic status. If you're a bond, if you're in bond, what are you? 
you're, uh, you owe money, you're in debt. But if you're free, you're free of what? Indebtedness. Everything's paid off. Male or female, that's a social status. So you're, he's dealing with the national status. He's dealing with the, uh, the uh, social status. There, he'll, he'll talk about barbarians and Scythians and all that. He, that's the, there's a religious status. He says all of that is what? If you're in Christ and today, all are equal. There's no different status. At Corinth, come back to Romans 11. At Corinth, when that little church is joined hard to the synagogue next door and they're doing their stuff, and, uh, and Sosthenes, the brother, comes over, he's the chief ruler of the synagogue. When he comes over, he comes over as a lost man on his way to hell, hears the gospel, gets saved, joins the church, the body of Christ, and moves in and helps them there at Corinth. How did, what happened to you? Same thing. Didn't matter about nationality. That's why Paul will later say to Timothy he would have all men be saved. It's, the nationality issue is, is, is no longer the issue. Again, to say that, come back to Romans 11 there, to say that God is just done with the Jew could you imagine saying that? He's just done with people. If you fall in this people group, you're done. He's done with you. No, he's not. He's got a message to the individual. God does desire the Israelite to respond positively to what he's doing. But then 11.15, dispensationally, national Israel is cast away. And again, it's a temporary condition. He's going to finish their program. He's going to work it out. There will be a nation of Israel. Yeah, but Rick, there is one over there today. But not really. I know they are on the books and in the talking heads, but they're not God's people. I said this yesterday. I hope you realize that if, the, if we get raptured home today, that nation of Israel is the one that will sign the League of Agreement with the Antichrist. That's who's going to do it. They will. So when you think about that, it's like, wait a minute, what do they need to hear? They need to hear Paul's gospel. That's what they need to hear. So as we go through the, again, this is why right division in dispensational Bible study helps us understand it. I'm going to make, I'm going to read you a quote, okay? I didn't say this. I wish I had. We make the cuts. We're talking about right division. Dispensational Bible study. We make the cuts where God has already made those cuts. And that brings great clarity to the Word of God. He's already divided it. We need to do what? Same thing. Don't say he's replaced Israel with us. No, he's doing something. Their program is there. He's doing something now, and he will resume that program when he's done. In the meantime, in the now... The present condition in Israel is that they what? Are going to get saved into the church. The unbelieving Jew has an opportunity to do what? Become a believing member of the church, the body of Christ. Ephesians 2, we read it. He's going to make of twain one new man, Jew and a Gentile. That's what he's doing. So right division, as we study this and as we get into this, we're looking at what God is doing. And uh, he's interrupted the old with something brand new. And when you come into the Old Testament, you really quickly begin to say, wait a second, he's going to finish out 
what he said he's going to do. So go back to 11.1, and let's think about the question here. All that was introduction, by the way. Now we're going to get into the, I got like eight pages up here, you know. <laughs> I do, but I'm not going to give it all to you. Somebody told me a great story Jerry did last week about uh, the preacher and, uh, anyway, just 11.1. I, I'll tell you, but just let's not waste the time on a, on a story. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Now let's think about the, the question here. Has God done this? Has he cast away? Has he made Israel null and void? Well, God forbid. Perish the thought. He, he's not dealing, he's, his, his setting aside isn't an individual thing. It's a national thing. Come over to Hebrews 6. And the reason you make that distinction and the reason that Paul is going to use himself, an individual Jew, as a, as a support evidence to it, is because of what the rest of the Word of God says God's attitude is toward the children of Israel. Hebrews chapter 6. Just notice some verses here. Hebrews 6 and verse uh, 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, so where are we? Abraham's the individual. The nation of Israel is not on the scene here. Who's this to? The individual, Abraham. Because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. You know what that is? God said, I'm making an agreement here with who? With myself. And Abraham, you're going to be a part of that agreement if you want to be. And Abraham's like, uh, yeah, I think I do, okay? But he, I'm going to swear where? There's no one greater than God, so God's swearing by God, saying, surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiply, I will multiply thee. So the multiplied seed. By the way, who's he talking to? We're in the book of Hebrews. He's talking to the Jews, isn't he? Here's your lineage. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, talking about Abraham, for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Think about that. In an agreement between men, what ends the strife? An oath, a, an agreement, a contract, a right hand of shake, boom, it's done. Now we're no longer in, now we're no longer negotiating. It's done, okay? You know, you go in, you sell a house. You guys see this guy on TV, 72 hours, sold in 72 hours by whatever. He's a weird-looking guy. I don't know. I'm just sorry. It's just personal. And I'm sitting here going, he got me 100000 above asking. I'm like, really? Who negotiated that, you know? Actually, who's paying that? But anyway, what do, what do they have? They sit down with the contract. They're going to let me stay 60 days longer. How'd you work? So what did you do? You went through the strife of negotiating that out until when? You signed it, you agreed, and you're done. Verse 17. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise. So who's that? That's Abraham and his seed line. Notice the immutability of his counsel. Confirmed it by an oath. See that issue of immutability? 
That's God's character now is on the line. His integrity, that word in a, in, uh, immutability, unchangeable. It's a part of God's character. He will not change. That's the, that's the idea. So what does he do? Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who hath fled for refuge and to lay hold upon the hope set before us. He says, hey, I give you two things that will never change. One's my word, my oath, my agreement that I made with myself to bless you. And the other is, I'm going to do it. That's the second part of the oath. The first is, here's my word of what I'm going to do. And then the second is, I'm going to do it. And that's the end there of verse 19. They fled for the refuge to lay hold upon the hope, what? Set before us. What are they looking for? They're looking for that kingdom. They're looking for their hope. What did God say? God promised Abraham over here, the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to get a land, and you're going to have a people to occupy that land. And there's going to be a throne on it. So he reaches into David and the Davidic covenant and says, here's how the throne's going to be fulfilled. And you're going to get it over here. And you know what? Abraham dies not receiving it, but seeing it, believing it. And God says, Abraham, you got my word, and I'm going to do it. So Abraham goes, yeah, I can't swear by anybody greater than you. You're God. And off you go. So to say that the church replaces Israel is to say what? God broke his word. God's a liar. And it's that plain and simple, quite honestly. So when you come back to this, come back to Exodus 31. When you study this out about Israel, Exodus 31, when Paul says, has God cast away Israel? And he says, God forbid. Why? Because he can't violate who he is. He said it, and he's going to do it. So if you study the Old Testament, that reaffirms that. And you would never ask such a foolish question, has he just got rid of her? He wouldn't, you would never say that as a Jew or as a Bible believer. The problem with covenant theologists and the Reformed theology guys is they don't believe the Bible. They hate dispensationalism, and, th thus they, and they hate a King James Bible, thus they hate what God's trying to do, because it doesn't fit a doctrinal statement. Now, ooh, Exodus 31. Just notice this. Exodus 31, 17. Here's the Lord talking to Moses. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel for how long? So now you get in a big argument about how long is forever and how long is everlasting and how long is eternal. And, you know, why? Because the verse says what? It's forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. By the way, notice how he connects the children of Israel to creation. It's going to be important here in about ten minutes, okay? Look at Exodus 32 and 13, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's Jacob's other name, Israel. Thy servants to whom 
thou swearest by thine own self. Okay? Now this is Moses talking to the Lord. Verse 11. He says, remember how thou swearest by who? Remember your immutability. You said it. <laughs> and guess what? You got to do it. I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it for, well, until the church, the body of Christ shows up, and then we're going to give it all to them. No, it's forever. Come over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Again, he reaffirms, I swear, Moses and the guys don't think he's going to, uh, 2 Samuel 7. Moses and them don't think he's going to break his word, do they? They don't say, put in there in brackets and a parenthesis, only if you don't do the church, the body of Christ thing. No. Only if you don't do the dog, the DOG, the dispensation of grace. Only if you don't. No. He says what? Forever. 2 Samuel 7, verse 24. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel, to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. Now, this is David, verse 18. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said. So this is David talking to the Lord. And what did he say? Your immutability clause that you gave us says what? You said we're your children forever. Now, is all Israel Israel? Remember that question in Romans 9? No, they're not. Why? How do you? Because there's an unbelieving element, and then there's a believing element. David's part of the believing element. There's an unbelieving side to this. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, the, the, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever. And do as thou hast said. Now, what, what David's talking about the Davidic covenant here. He says, listen, you, so, you told me back over here that I was, it was in my house and my flesh was going to sit on the throne. I'm holding you to it. You said it. Now what? Go do it. See? We're in verse 25. 2 Samuel 7, 25. Now look at verse 26. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the Lord over Israel, and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. Now, that's interesting. Because magnify thy what? Name. As long as God's name is magnified, by the way, how long is it going to be magnified for? Ever then that's how long Israel's going to be God's people in the earth. Okay? If I need to add that to it. We're in the Old Testament, so we're in the earthly program. How long is, how long is Israel going to be God's people? As long as his name is magnified, how long is that going to be? Forever. Now come over to Jeremiah 31. Because just in case that isn't enough, we started there in Exodus, and I said, watch the thing about creation, the connection there with Israel and creation, the Sabbath day, the day of rest. 
wasn't a day that God just got worn out and said, I'm tired. Have you ever done that? Man, the other day we planted flower, plant flowers, rose bushes, and everything at the house. We put eight of them in, seven in one day, eight in the next. You know what? At the end of those two days, you know what I was? I was ready to go eight more. Baloney, I was tired. You know, you get the post. First, you got to wet the ground. I've been wetting the ground now for, what, about a year, I think. Just let the drips go. Get it all. And that wasn't too smart because you know what happens when the sand and all that gets wet? It becomes hard clay. I'm like, sticking to the shovel. I'm like, you know, every other word. You know, but what? You wore out. God didn't get worn out and say, okay, guys, time out. He says, no. I, this day, we're going to reflect on why creation existed. Why did I just do six days of creation? Why? Okay, Israel, you need to pause on the seventh day, and you need to rest and contemplate, not your navel, that's usually what we tell the kids to do, contemplate why and your connection to creation here and why I created you. Why did he create Israel? As that fourth institution of human government in response to a satanic rebellion. And Israel became his people, his government in the land. And you need to remember that. But now watch Jeremiah 31 here. Watch verse 35. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars by for a light. By the way, you see me, uh, the, uh, my allergies, I, I've taken everything in the cabinet that will allow me to stay standing straight up. And they, my nose, just it's, uh, it's just allergies. So I'm not sick, just allergies, okay? Verse 35. The ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divided the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Do you remember in Romans 9 where we talked about the Lord of Sabaoth? That military distinction? That military title? The Lord of hosts, the man of war? You see, God created the six days of creation in a response to a rebellion that happened. And in that creation, he's like, I'm responding and how I'm going to reclaim my creation. And he does it. Verse 36. If those ordinances, what ordinances? The sun, the moon, the stars, creation. I, I just think about, you think about Einstein's theory and all these guys. Uh, who, who's, who discovered gravity? Uh, Galo, Galo uh, Galio? No, Newton did. And all these guys, all oh, famed guys, right? Baloney, it's been in the book since day one. <laughs> Why? Because God put it there. He's the one that spun it. Now man's a little slow. Do you know that Moses told Israel that when you're going to clean your wounds, use running water? And just in the last couple centuries, does the medical field do what? Begin to use running water to clean wounds out. It's been in the book. Anyway, I told you I'm not going to get on that. I've got to get going. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall, what? Cease, now, but watch, from being a, what? Nation before me for how long? Notice, this is a national thing here. But a nation is made up of individuals. 
So how long is that nation, as long as creation is going, the nation is going to be there. But if creation ceases, then what can happen? Israel ceases. Not could, they will. Now watch verse 37. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Uh-oh. What is Paul saying? They're cast off. They're cast away now. But as a what? As a nation. See, the individual still has an opportunity. That's what Paul's saying. Here in the Old Testament, What's happening? They're still there. If creation stops, Israel ceases. But the only way that God will cast Israel off is that creation stops. But what happens in Revelation 21.1? There's a new what? A new heaven and a new earth, isn't there? So the original is messed up. (laughs) But yet Israel is going to be where? It will be there in the new earth. They're going to be there, that believing element. We don't have the time. You go to Isaiah 45, they're there forever. You go to Psalms 89, they're there forever. Over and over and over again, the Old Testament says Israel is going to be there for how long? Forever. It doesn't say that he's going to replace Israel with the church, the body of Christ. So 11.1, go back there to Romans 11, If you say, well, that's a replacement idea, then what you're calling is the Old Testament to be untrue. Well, Israel means church. Show me that verse. By the way, it doesn't exist. It says what? Israel. Romans 11, 1. I'm sorry, 11, 15. What's Paul say? But wait a minute. For if the casting away of them, and that's Israel be the reconciling of the who? Of the world. You see, the world has, has, a, has had a change. A, and the only way for God to now go deal with the world, apart from working through the nation of Israel, is to do what? Change the dispensation. You follow that? It gets even more clear in verse 1 when Paul says, For I am an Israelite. Think about that. Of the tribe of, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul brings himself in to prove the craziness of the question. Because if God cast away the Jews, then the Jews could not themselves individually get saved. God doesn't desire that. What does he desire? He desires all men to be saved. That's the new message. That includes the Jew individually and the Gentile. He's taken away the national thing. And what Paul does is, is he says, listen, I'm the first illustration of this. By the way, look at verse 14, 11, 14. If by any means I might provoke to emulation them which are my what? Other Israelites and might save what? Doesn't say all of them. It says what? Some of them. Verse 26 says, So all Israel shall be saved. 
Today, it's a sum. It's unto all and upon all them that believe. Now there's an individual issue that has, they have to respond to. Okay? Now Paul uses himself. Real quick. Think about Paul. The individual issue. Come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. When Paul says, I am an Israelite. I'm your first evidence. Paul, could Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, in an Israel program, a Pharisee, a Hebrew, all of that, could he have been rescued? Could he have been saved under Israel's program? The answer is no. Okay? Watch his own testimony. Again, Paul the Apostle, as Saul of Tarsus, in Israel, he's a, in the Jews' religion, Galatians 1. Watch what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number uh, 13. Who, and that's himself, was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in, uh, in unbelief. Verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul's the first guy in the church, the body of Christ. But notice verse 13. What was his career in Israel's program? What was he? A blasphemer, injurious. He's a prosecutor. He's a persecutor. He's got the letters from the chief elders to go and get them and throw them in the church. And he wreaked havoc, the verse says in Acts, on the church. Paul says, I don't qualify. I disqualify under Israel's program. I am disqualified. Now, how do you know that? Matthew 12. Just look real quick. Matthew 12. Because you have to see, I, I want you to catch verse 11.1, one, one, why he uses himself. Why he just doesn't say, but the individual Jews can get saved. And he says, no, for I am an Israelite. That's who he was. He's a Gentile and a Jew. Okay? But look at Matthew 12. Look, if you will, at verse 31 and 32. Matthew 12.31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blaspheme shall be forgiven unto men. So what, what can be forgiven? What's on the table? All manner. All manner of sin, all manner of bla blaspheme means to speak evil against. That's all it means. All manner of sin and this blaspheme can be what? Forgiven. You see that? Doesn't matter what it is, it can be forgiven. But the blaspheme against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son, see that, that's blaspheming, speaking a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. What the Lord say on Calvary? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Father forgave. He changed it from murder to manslaughter so he could deal with them. Okay? But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Now watch carefully, neither in this world, neither in the world where? To come. 
Now, come over to Acts 7 quickly, Acts 7, and watch Saul of Tarsus, later to be the Apostle Paul, do just what that verse says you're not supposed to do. What are you not supposed to do, Matthew 12, 31 and 32? Speak evil, speak against the Holy Ghost. You want to kill the Father? Go ahead, it'll be forgiven you. You want to kill the Son? Go ahead, it'll be forgiven you. But the Holy Ghost, you can't touch Him. You can't touch this. Okay? We were at a wedding the other night, and they played a lot of 80s music. Good music. Like, right on. They played one or two new stuff just to get the kids going in the dance floor. And I'm watching, I'm going, man, this guy's playing some good stuff. You know, it's too bad I don't dance, you know. You know. Act 7. You have Stephen, okay? Um, drop down to verse 55, Acts 7, 55. You have Stephen. He's before the council. He's in trouble. He's a man, verse 55, but he being full of who? The Holy Ghost. He's a man full of who? Full of the Holy Ghost. Stephen... John the Baptist represents the Father. He was sent by the Father. What'd they do to old John? They beheaded him. Herod killed him. What'd they do to the Son? They hung him at Calvary. One strike, two strike, where are we at? We're on the third strike. Here comes the pitch, full count, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded. What are you going to do? What do they do? Well... He looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. What'd they do to Stephen? A man full of the Holy Ghost. What'd they do? They stoned him. They killed the Holy Ghost. Three strikes and you're out. But keep reading though. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. There's Saul, Paul the Apostle later, but he's Saul of Tarsus. Now look at 8.1, because you might say, okay, big deal, Rick. But 8.1 makes it a big deal. And Saul was consenting unto his death. Do you see consent? That's a heavy legal terminology there. When the Jews cast him out, Stephen out, they got the rocks ready. They look over to Steve, that Saul, and Saul goes, thumbs up. Get him. And they do it. If he'd have went down, they'd have dropped the stones and walked away. He was consenting. He gave his consent. You ever do that? We need your consent to do this. Uh, okay. And boom. Now look at nine, chapter 9 of Acts. Verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus of the synagogue that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem, and he journeyed to Damascus, and off he goes. Notice, where did, Paul, where did Saul of Tarsus go? He walked right into the CEO's office and said, give me what I need. Do you for, and uh, what was he? He was a blasphemer. So in 11.1 of Romans, I know it's time to quit, when he says, I am an Israelite, 
Paul did not qualify for eternal life under Israel's program. He didn't qualify. He broke the only unforgivable sin in their program at the moment, at that time, and he blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So what did God do in 9? Or I'm sorry, in 7 with the stoning of Stephen? He changed the dispensation. He had to to then go meet Saul on the road to Damascus because Saul on the road to Damascus doesn't qualify to have eternal life. That's what Matthew 12, 32 is clear. So when Paul in 11, 1 says, guys, individually, he's not done with us. Look at me. You want to follow that? Okay. Now, he's going to do something else in 2 to 6, and we'll get into that next time, but end of... God hasn't cast Israel away. How? Individually. He didn't deem a whole national race null and void. He says, I'm just going to deal with you guys differently than I have in the past. 11.15, when we get down to 11.15, he has to change the program to deal with the world graciously. Otherwise, he's got to pour out his wrath and judgment on them. That's what's happening in Acts 7. You follow that? So him using himself is drawing an attention here that God had to change the program just for me to even get saved. And I am an Israelite. Okay? I hope you catch that. That'll save you from saying that God's just replacing Israel with the church. No, he's dealing with the individuals on an individual faith base basis. Okay? All right, good start. We're on an hour, time to be done, and I'm five minutes over, so don't tell Linda, <laughs> except she knows, okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the scriptures that we can look into them and, and see what you're doing and what, have, what you have done and what you will do in the future. In your name we pray, amen. All right, we'll see you back.